Well, I'm about to read the Bible passage that I will then preach on. And if it's your first time visiting Good Shepherd, it might be helpful to know that we haven't picked out today's passage because of its subject matter. It is simply the latest passage we've reached in the book of Malachi, which we've been studying. There are two very sensitive topics in today's passage, marrying outside the faith, marrying a non-Christian, and divorce. My natural inclination is to avoid preaching on sensitive topics like these, so I might never have chosen to preach on this passage if it wasn't for the fact that we are going through the whole of the book of Malachi without skipping over anything. And that's why it's a good discipline for us as a church to study whole books of the Bible or whole sections of the Bible bit by bit. Otherwise, we'd be tempted only to look at those passages we're already familiar with and comfortable with. And so we wouldn't be stretched and challenged by God's word. With that said, I'll now read Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not break faith, with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not break faith. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please join me in praying for God to be with us as we look at that Bible passage together. Let's bow our heads. Psalm 119 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Father Almighty, we have to admit that by nature we are in the dark and we are simple. So we pray that your words would be unfolded faithfully in this sermon giving us light and understanding to help us follow Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Last Sunday was our monthly Holy Communion service, which meant we heard Jesus' words, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, 
Those words are quoted in every communion service at our church and most other churches. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus says. He said those words during the Last Supper, on the night before he was put to death on the cross. The red wine in the cup that he held symbolized his blood, the blood that would be shed on the very next day. And it was through that blood, that death, that a new covenant between God and humanity came into being. A covenant is a relationship-creating deal. It's an agreement that establishes a relationship from then on. Whenever you come across that technical term covenant in the Bible, it might help to translate it immediately in your brain as relationship-making deal. So when Jesus spoke about the new covenant in his blood, he was saying to his disciples, the way you relate to God is about to change. Because of the blood I'm about to shed, symbolized by this wine. That's what Jesus meant when he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It was a very important announcement. There are big differences between the new covenant way of relating to God and the old covenant way of relating to God. One difference is found in those words, in my blood. The new covenant way of relating to God is based on Jesus' sacrificial blood. The old way, based on the blood of animals, sacrificed at the temple in Jerusalem, doesn't work anymore. And there are other differences between the new covenant way of relating to God and the old covenant way of relating to God. But there's also continuity between the old and new covenants. They have plenty of things in common. And so whenever we Whenever we read a passage in the Old Testament, by the way, testament is another word for covenant. The Old Testament is the Old Covenant. Whenever we read a passage in the Old Testament slash covenant, we have to read it carefully. What we're reading might have lots in common with the New Covenant, or it might major on something different from our New Covenant way of relating to God. We have to read it carefully. Take a look, for example, at the second half of verse 10, where Malachi says, Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? The covenant mentioned in that verse must be the old covenant. The book of Malachi is an Old Testament slash covenant book. Malachi is saying to his fellow Israelites, Loosely translated, why are we trashing the covenant deal we have with God by treating one another so badly? What do you think? Does that have lots in common with our new covenant period of salvation history? Or is it very different? Should we file Malachi's words in verse 10 under C for continuity or D for difference? Surely we should file that under C for continuity. The basic principle there is that when fellow believers act treacherously towards one another, they tarnish the covenant with God that they share. And that's true in our own time as well. When Christians act 
treacherously towards other Christians, we bring disgrace upon the new covenant. We spoil the relationship with God that we share. Our vertical relationship with God is spoiled. In our experience and in the eyes of a watching world, when our horizontal relationship with one another breaks down. That's Malachi's big point. It's true in our period of salvation history as well. And Malachi highlights two particular causes of community breakdown. And both of these two causes of community breakdown are also applicable to our period of salvation history. We're going to look at both of them for the rest of the sermon. The first cause of community breakdown that Malachi highlights is marrying outside the covenant community. Marrying outside the covenant community. In the second half of verse 11, Malachi says, Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. At the heart of the Old Covenant was the temple in Jerusalem, known as the Sanctuary, God's holy place. Malachi describes it as the sanctuary the Lord loves. He loved that temple in Jerusalem because it allowed him to live among his beloved people. The temple was where animal sacrifices paid the penalty for human sin. That meant sinful people could approach a holy God and enjoy fellowship with him. The temple showed how much God loves people like you and me. It revealed his desire to dwell with people like you and me. The temple wasn't just for Israel. Other nations were summoned to it. You can read one of those summons in Psalm 100. Other nations were summoned to the temple to worship the God of Israel, the one true God, alongside his people, the Israelites. In a fallen world, a world of sick and suffering people, a world of war and destruction, the temple was God's outpost of hope. It was the covenant in stone and mortar. It was relationship with God made visible. But according to Malachi, the Israelites of his day were desecrating that outpost of hope. When Malachi talks about Judah in verse 11, he's talking about lots of people as if they were one person. Judah was the ancestor they had in common. It's a powerful way of getting the point across. Rather than saying, lots of you are marrying the daughters of foreign gods, Malachi bundles them all into one representative figure, their shared ancestor, Judah, And he says, this is what Judah is doing. He's marrying the daughter of a foreign god. The problem here is not interracial marriage. Moses married an Ethiopian. Joseph married an Egyptian. And Boaz married Ruth the Moabite, who turns out to be one of the most admirable people in the entire Bible. The problem is not interracial marriage. The problem is interfaith marriage. The men of Malachi's day were marrying foreign women who were still worshipping their foreign gods. In fact, they identified themselves so closely 
with those foreign gods that Malachi describes them in verse 11 as daughters of those gods. Now, at the start of the sermon, we thought about the Old and New Covenants having differences between them and things in common. As I've already said, Malachi's big point carries over from the Old to the New. The New Covenant is harmed when the community breaks faith with one another. That still happens today, and it still happens in the area of marriage. Before I go on to explore the equivalent in our time to what was happening in Malachi's time. Let me say as clearly as I can that I don't have any particular individual in our congregation in view. I really don't. I'm just trying to go where the Bible leads me. It's always good to go where the Bible leads us because God's word, as we're told in Psalm 19, is sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. In our period of salvation history, the equivalent to that verse 11 interfaith marriage is marriage between a Christian and a non-Christian. The New Testament writers seem to recognize that in the ancient world, and I think this is true in parts of the world today, Christians would sometimes have no choice over who they married. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul speaks about a category of people who did have a choice over who they married, widows. He considers whether or not widows should marry. And he says in his judgment, a widow will be happier if she, if she stays single. Paul, one of Jesus' spokesmen, holds singleness in high esteem. And not only for widows and widowers, he thinks very highly of lifelong singleness. And he modeled that himself. But Paul also says this, if a woman's husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but only in the Lord. So in that situation where someone is free to choose whether to marry and who to marry, Paul says they must marry in the Lord, meaning within the Christian community. If you've been a Christian for a long time, I'm sure you'll have heard sermons or youth group talks on this subject, the subject of not marrying an unbeliever. What Malachi chapter 2 adds to the discussion is the harm to the community that's caused by an interfaith marriage. Generally speaking, Christians are told not to marry a non-Christian because it would be disobedient and it would also be unwise. It won't actually work out well for them personally. Those points are very true and must be said but Malachi adds yet another factor, the impact of interfaith marriage on the believing community. Malachi says, why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Breaking faith is just one word in the original language. It means to break trust, to act treacherously towards another person or people. In Malachi's time, interfaith marriages were intensely dangerous to the community, to Israel. Listen to what Ezra says about interfaith marriage at roughly the same time that Malachi was prophesying. Ezra looks back to the recent exile in Babylon and he says, this is from Ezra chapter 9, 
what has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds, and yet our God, Ezra's praying, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and have given us a remnant. In other words, that small group of Israelites back in Judea after the exile. Ezra goes on. Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? End quote. So Ezra is horrified at the thought that interfaith marrying will bring down God's anger on Israel all over again, and Malachi is thinking along the same lines. Individual sins can have community consequences. In our period of salvation history, the danger to the believing community is less intense than it was in Malachi's time. At least it's less intense in terms of this world consequences. That's one of the differences between the Old and New Covenants. Under the Old Covenant, there were curses that came into effect when the people sinned, such as famine and disease and enemy attack and even exile. And the New Covenant doesn't operate like that. But the general principle still holds true. The community of believers will be harmed if someone marries an unbeliever. For one thing, interfaith marriage takes a believer away from the pool of marriageable Christians. For believers who want to marry a fellow believer, there's one less believer available for them to marry. That's one community consequence. Another community consequence is the loss of the serving and helping and burden-bearing that the believer would have done if they hadn't married an unbeliever. In practice, marrying an unbeliever almost always means a big reduction in the believer's availability to serve and help and burden-bear. That's a loss to the community. And perhaps most significantly of all, it is very difficult to raise children as Christians in a mixed-faith household. The unbelieving marriage partner might not permit the Christian marriage partner to raise their children within the covenant community. Or they might permit it in theory, but not really in practice. What a loss for the community that is. It's a harmful community consequence of interfaith marriage. When a Christian chooses to marry an unbeliever, it leads to one form or another of community breakdown. There's genuine loss and genuine harm done to the community. I'm conscious there might be someone listening to this sermon online or here at the trial today who chose to marry an unbeliever. And perhaps you now look back on that decision with regret, perhaps painful regret. If that's you, please drill deeply into the gold mine of God's sovereignty. All of history, on the grand level and the personal level, is under God's loving control. God is in charge. He has a plan. It's a good plan and it's a detailed plan. It's a plan that incorporates suffering and sin, which often makes it mysterious in our experience. While it unfolds, it can be very hard for us to understand. But when Jesus returns 
to live forever with his people, we'll rejoice in that mysterious plan that brought us into the new Jerusalem. That's why Christians should look back on past sins with repentance more than with regret. It's much more important to acknowledge sin and confess it to God than to regret it. Repentance has a better fit with God's sovereignty than regret. God lovingly takes the repentant wrongdoer into his arms, offering forgiveness and rejoicing and peace. He can do that because he himself has paid all our moral debts when he died in our place on the cross in the person of his son. What a God! What a salvation! How good it is! If you're listening today as a single person, you might feel fully on board with everything that has been said so far, but the challenge will come when you're lonely, when church for some reason has been very disappointing for some months, and when the friendliest, kindest, most attractive person in your life is that non-Christian co-worker who's just asked you out on a date. If that happens to you, say to them, let me think about that and get back to you. And then go home and read Malachi chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For all the Old Covenant and New Covenant differences, those verses are still relevant today. Choosing to marry a non-Christian, which is so often where dating ends up, is not only disobedient and bad for you, it's also harmful to God's community, the church. Your brothers and sisters in Christ love you and want your full participation in the community. We don't want to see you with one foot in the church and one foot in the non-Christian world because of marriage. Hold on to your confidence in God's word. Hold on to your confidence in his strengthening power. Say to that person who asked you on a date, I'm afraid that's an invitation I can't accept because of my Christian faith. If you'd like me to say more about that and explain, I'd be happy to do that. time for us to press on to the second cause of community breakdown in this passage. The first was marrying outside the covenant community, and the second is divorce within the covenant community. Divorce within the covenant community. This, again, might be a very sensitive subject for you if you're the child of divorced parents, perhaps, or if you yourself are divorced. Once again, the plan is to go where the Bible takes us, trusting that God has good things to say to us in his word. In verse 13, Malachi returns to a theme we've seen previously in this book, rejected offerings. In this case, the reason for the offerings being rejected is different from the reason in earlier passages. Looking at verse 13, it seems the people know that God is refusing to accept their sacrifices, and it makes them weep and wail, according to verse 13. One way to put it is God isn't answering their prayers, and they know it. Malachi then explains 
why God's door is closed to them. He says in verse 14, it is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Malachi goes on, verse 15, has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. And do not break faith with the wife of your youth. So there's a pattern of behavior going on. A wave of breaking faith on the part of men with, their, with the wives they married when they were younger. A wave of divorces. And God cannot overlook that. It's God who makes two people one through marriage. And that gives God an obligation to stick up for the women in Malachi's day being cast to one side. God wants those unions to continue. The Israelites in Malachi's time were splitting apart marriage unions that God wanted to stay unbroken. Each of those homes, each of those households was a small community of faith designed for raising godly offspring, it says in verse 15. You can't harm that community, God is saying to the people, and expect the covenant to go on as before. The people can't expect business as usual in their vertical relationship with God if they're acting treacherously in their horizontal relationships with one another. F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel Tender as the Night tells the story of Dick and Nicole Diver. The Divers are an American couple living in the south of France in the 1920s. One of the novel's pivotal scenes happens when Dick Diver is in a barber's shop having one of those cutthroat razor shaves, while Nicole Diver is in the adjoining hair salon having her hair cut. While they're there, a man they know named Tommy Barbon comes in. He wants the Divers to get a divorce so that he can marry Nicole, which is something Nicole also wants to happen. Tommy demands a conversation with both Dick and Nicole immediately. Even though Dick is midway through his shave and Nicole is midway through her haircut, Tommy has his way and so they each leave the barber's shop in a half-finished state. Dick half-shaved and Nicole with her hair half-cut. That's how they look when, led by Tommy, they agree to divorce. Face half-shaved, hair half-cut. It's Fitzgerald's way of saying that without each other, Dick and Nicole will be unfinished and deficient. Through their marriage, they have become one. Divorce will leave each of them incomplete. That scene in Tender as the Night fits well with today's passage. 
God opposes divorce because it breaks a union of his making into two problematic pieces. When God says in verse 16 that he hates a man covering himself with violence, he's not changing the subject. He's still talking about divorce because divorce splits up something violently. That should not be split. It defiles the covenant because it harms the covenant community. Now, so far, we've been thinking about divorce in Malachi's time. In the New Testament, God reaffirms the core teaching here in Malachi chapter 2. Divorce breaks up a union that God wants to protect and sustain. As we heard in our first Bible reading earlier this morning, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus quotes the famous words from the book of Genesis, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Jesus then adds this comment. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus goes on to give an exception to that rule. According to Matthew 19, verse 9, it's legitimate to divorce a marriage partner who's guilty of sexual immorality. And most Bible commentators agree that Paul adds a second God-given exception in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says that in cases of desertion, the marriage partner left behind is not enslaved, which means they're free to obtain a divorce and if they wish to marry again. That second exception to the general rule on divorce, the desertion exception, also applies to cases of domestic violence because violence drives the other person away. In practice, it's a kind of desertion. Well, whatever your marital status might be this morning, spiritually speaking, we are each one of us betrothed to the most wonderful marriage partner of all. Every believer is betrothed to the Lord Jesus himself. Paul uses marriage, the language of marriage, to talk about Christ's union with his people in Ephesians chapter 5. And that chapter isn't alone. Other New Testament passages do the same thing, 2 Corinthians 11 and Revelation chapter 19 and Revelation chapter 21. And what those passages tell us is that as believers in Jesus, we are currently engaged to him, betrothed to him. We should look forward to the day of his return as a bride looks forward to her wedding day. We'll enter into his presence. We'll be united to him with a greater intimacy than we're able to have with him while still here in this fallen world. Since we are all looking forward to the same magnificent future with Jesus, we must treat one another well. Not just in the areas that we've been thinking about, but in all things. God's people must treat one another well and not break faith with one another, not act treacherously, 
towards one another. God insists that we treat one another well. His covenant is defiled when we don't. We can't expect business as usual in our vertical relationship with God if we're acting treacherously in our horizontal relationships with one another. And since we have such a good shared future to look forward to, let us commit this morning with God's help to treat one another well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, through your grace, have done everything necessary to betroth us to your Son, the Lord Jesus. We do look forward to his return when we will be with him and enjoy greater intimacy with him than we're able to in this fallen world where he is not physically present among us. Please increase our joyful anticipation as we look ahead to that future. And as we meditate on it, would it stir us up to treat one another well, to bear one another's burdens instead of adding to them. We pray for your powerful help in this. And we pray this for Jesus' sake, that the covenant he instituted through his blood might not be tainted. Amen.